Let's begin class with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would shine your face upon us now. Send your angels to put a circle of protection around us, holding back any evil forces that would darken our mind. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be here and enlighten us, that we can learn of you today. We think of the families who have suffered loss this week, and we ask that your, your comforting spirit will be there to bring healing to their hearts, that they may look past the gloom of this world and see the light that is dawning, that is coming soon, as you are going to be arising in the east, and all those that we have lost will come forth from the grave, and we will join together again. We pray to see that day soon. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift, and the lesson title this week is Interpreting Prophetic Writings. And somebody read for us a memory text for us, please. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What do you think about that scripture? And we always understood that, that he was talking to those men on the road to Emmaus. But do you think that the scripture exaggerates when it says he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself? Or do you think that that's the purpose of all the scriptures to tell us about Jesus, tell us about God? It's hard to read numbers uh, and figure that out. It's hard to read numbers <laughs> or, or maybe uh, judges? Yes. <laughs> uh, but isn't it true that all of the scriptures, remember Jesus said to, to those of the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. When we read scriptures, do we keep that theme in mind? Hey, the primary purpose of scripture is to reveal God to us. Or do you think there's another purpose? Or is that the primary? This is life eternal, John 17. They might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ may not have sent. So revealing God to us is the way to win us back to eternal life. Yes? In Sunday's lesson, it says exegesis is concerned with the original meaning of a text. It focuses on what the author wanted to say and what the text meant to the original reader. And then the lesson asks us to read Romans 2, 14 through 16. So somebody read Romans 2, 14 through 16 for us, please. And we're going to be exploring that under this idea of exegesis concerned with the original meaning of the text and what the author wanted to say. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, and they are law themselves, even though they do not have the law. And since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witness. And their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Thoughts about the meaning of this text. What do you think Paul is trying to say? The Holy Spirit can reveal to people who don't have the scriptures uh, that there is a God. A lot of... Um, we think of them as heathen, but in, in countries where they have not yet had a missionary, when missionaries arrived there, many of them were treated very kindly, and those people did right because, because it was right. So, so are you suggesting this text, Paul is trying to say, people who have never heard the gospel, never heard about Jesus, still can be saved? Yes. Okay. How about people who have heard about Jesus... And have said they reject Jesus. Which Jesus did they hear about? Oh, did you hear the question he asked over here? Did Jesus say that false messiahs would go out into the world? And so how about if you travel to a place and you say, you know, I'm a Christian. And the person's initial response is, oh, I've heard about Christ and, and I, don't, I don't accept him. Do you write him off or do you say, tell me about the Christ you've heard about? Because maybe the Christ they heard about was one of the false Christs, the false messiahs, and they were right for rejecting it. Yeah? And so I think that's a beautiful place to start. And then, and I can tell you my practice, I have lots of patients who see me who don't believe in God. And I ask them, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they'll describe a God who doesn't care that children are abused, a God who looks the other way when atrocities happen, or a God who, who takes mommies from their kids uh, because at the, at the funeral service the preacher said, God took your mommy to be with him, or Jesus took your mommy to be with him. The, things like this get put in the minds, and, and, uh, and people say, I don't believe in a God like that. And I go, good for you, I don't believe in him either. 
And you'd, you'd be surprised at how, how the defenses come down. Really? You don't? No, I don't believe in a God like that. And then we explore other possibilities. And so just because somebody says they don't believe in Jesus doesn't mean that they've rejected Jesus. Do they have to accept the name Jesus in order to be a follower of Jesus? When Jesus was on earth, did he even go by that name? No. Except maybe when the Greeks came to visit, right near the, the end, and they asked to, to a visit, maybe they, they said Jesus. But no, he didn't even go by that name. So how do we put together what Paul's saying in Romans with the following text? Acts 4.12, Paul's suggesting that, that they don't have to have the written word necessarily, those who haven't heard it, but the Holy Spirit still is able to lighten their mind of the truth about God. But under... Under uh, the following text, Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Or, Jesus in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. How are these texts in, the, in evangelical Christianity often used? The two that I just read. Do you know? I travel around the country quite a bit, and I have lots of interactions with um, evangelical Christians around the country. And I can tell you that it's commonly believed that unless you're baptized in the name of Jesus, accepting him as Lord and Savior, going through the, you know, that ritual, uh, you can't be saved. That only those who accept Jesus specifically, overtly, consciously, purposely, willfully can be saved. That's a common belief. Have you heard that? Yes. How do you harmonize these texts? And they use these two texts as, as support for that. There's no other name. You can't come through Buddha. You can't come through Hare Krishna. You can't come through uh, Muhammad. There's no other name. It has to be through Jesus. But how do you harmonize with what Paul's saying? Those who've never heard about Jesus, but do by nature the things contained in the law are law unto themselves. Yes? In the Eastern culture, didn't the name represent everything about the person? Oh, I like that. Yeah, keep going. Saved by Jesus' name, and there's no other name, then we're saved by everything about him, which is the truth about God. So we're saved by his character. His, and God is? God is love. God is love. So we're saved by that loving connection that emanates from God and reaches out to us, brings us back into unity with God. So anybody who is reconciled to God is through God's initiation of love reaching out to them. Oh, I like that. That's good. Other thoughts? In the Bible, when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't have chapter and verse divisions. So when we read in Romans 2, the, uh, the fact those have not heard the law or law unto themselves, it's just continuing a thought that he began in Romans 1. And in Romans 1... He said, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What is that verse telling us? Where are men learning about God as far as Paul's concerned, so that no one is without excuse? The book of nature. So the creation that God made speaks about God, and... Which member of the Godhead is the member, now all of them could, of course, but which member was the member through which God created this planet? Jesus Christ. And I'll give you some verses of that, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Through whom he made the universe. Or John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Or Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So is the Bible making a strong case that the member of the Godhead through which creation happened was Jesus? Yeah? Yes. So then when somebody learns about God through the book of nature and the Holy Spirit enlightens their mind to God through nature, they're still coming through the member of the Godhead who made nature, which is Jesus. Yes? Did you find an Old Testament text leading to the idea that Christ was the creator? Oh, I didn't even look for one. Can anybody think of one? In the very beginning of Genesis, it says that the Word was uh, talks about Jesus as being the Word that spoke, and then the Holy Spirit as moving on the face of the earth. 
I don't think, does Genesis make it clear? Was Jesus or is it God? God spoke, and we heard from the New Testament. I think he's to talk to somebody who, who maybe is Jewish. Exactly. Who doesn't have the New Testament to enlighten them on the Old Testament. There is a place, Solomon talks about the one who is my friend, who's, who's at my bosom, stands at my right hand. Uh, you're, you're familiar with this text, anybody? Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, my friend. And he is like a contractor or designer or goes out and does the creating. There is an indication there in Proverbs 8. The one who is, who is my friend in my bosom does the creating. So. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Um, about the question that you asked, do they have to name the name of Jesus? And going along with what you're saying there about, the, uh, about nature and all that. All good things comes from God, whether we recognize it or not. That's right. They all come from God, and so therefore God is constantly drawing in whatever way he can to draw us closer and closer to him, whether we acknowledge it or not. And, and so what are those two antagonistic principles at war on the planet Earth? Love and truth. Selfishness. Love. God is love. And what's it antagonistic with? Selfishness, you said. In the world today, it's called survival of the fittest, watching out for number one. Okay, Satan's kingdom, God's kingdom at war on this planet Earth. And you can see that all every day working its way out in nature. C.S. Lewis got himself kind of in some tension with the evangelical community because of what he wrote in the end of the Chronicles of Narnia when he wrote about this, this worshiper of Taz. Anybody remember that? The worshiper of Taz dies and finds himself with Aslan. And, and with Aslan, he said, how am I here with you because I'm a worshiper of Taz? And I don't have the exact quote, so I'm going to give you the general thought that they expressed. And he said, all the good you did in worshiping of Taz is accounted unto me. One cannot do good in anyone's name and, and have it be accounted to Taz because Taz is, is evil. And all the evil people do in my name is really attributed to Taz. Does that make sense to you? So people who go around claiming to be Christians but practice Satan's methods, Jesus said you perform miracles. They will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. See, C.S. Lewis would say, those people saying they're doing the name of Aslan are really worshipers of Taz. But those who worship Taz but are practicing all the methods of Jesus are really worshipers of Jesus. Because there's only two ways to live. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, or loving yourself and exploiting others. I mean, it's only two options. Does that make sense? Now, with that in mind, does it, does it mean that because people can come to salvation through God's book of nature as the Holy Spirit enlightens them, well, then why evangelize? Why send missionaries? What does it matter? Nature has been corrupted. Darwin wasn't mistaken in his observations. He observed things as they were. He was mistaken in his conclusions about how things got to that point. And one of the things that happens when people observe nature without the enlightenment of the written word, when they observe nature without the written word, they often draw the wrong conclusion. And that's what happens with a lot of scientists. They reject the written word to enlighten them in their understanding of what's happening. And so they conclude falsely that what they see in nature is the, the normal or natural way things are supposed to work. Imagine there's a remote village in Africa in which everybody there is infected with HIV. And they're cut off from the rest of the world, and generations go by. And we're multiple generations down now, and everybody born is infected, born with HIV. And they have all the symptoms and sicknesses of HIV that come along. Might they conclude that this is just the way life is? And a naturalist one day arises and begins observing life, and they write their book of natural history. And they write their book of natural history about how sick everything is and all these symptoms that people get in the normal way of life. Well, this is since... Mankind fell into sin without the written word to enlighten us that there was a different standard, a different design template that was originally designed by God without any of the infection of selfishness and survival of the fittest. A perfect world that other-centered love. Without that insight, if we just look to the natural world, well, we come up with Darwin's conclusions. Falsely so. Well, the lesson suggests we also read Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19, which says, Son of man... I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. 
When I say to the wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him of his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Thoughts about that passage? What does it mean you will be held accountable? That's what I'm asking you. What does it mean? What are your thoughts? What does this mean? Should we all go ahead and get one of those you know, placard signs and stand on the streets of Times Square and shout out warnings to everybody as they walk by? Will you do good service for the Lord if you do that? I don't think so. Or will people think you're a little off and need to visit me? (laughs) (laughs) So what does this mean? Yeah. It means this way to every one of us, every Christian, certainly. If you see something is happening and don't do something about it, you're guilty. Just like you see an accident, you don't save a man breathing or something, or bleeding death, you don't don't save him. You're guilty of killing that man. What do you all think? You could have saved him, and you didn't. I think this is, this is commonly understood. Not in the law, of course. There's no law. You can't be prosecuted for standing by and not rendering aid. Interestingly enough, California this last year has allowed uh, someone to be prosecuted for rendering aid. There's always been, in, historically, the Good Samaritan Law, that if you render aid in good faith and something bad happens, you can't be sued for that. But California, the Supreme Court recently uh, overturned that, and somebody is now being sued in a Good Samaritan situation. There was a car wreck, and they pulled somebody out of a car that was like smoking and stuff, and there was some spinal cord injury that happened, and now the Good Samaritan is being sued. See, and we've generally prevented that from happening because, well, it puts a little damper on your willingness to help somebody if they're going to basically turn on you, right? Yeah. So, in light of this text that we just read, if you do not warn or speak out or dissuade, his blood will be held accountable to you. If you see a three-year-old playing with rat poison or a lighter with a lighter fluid with matches or a loaded gun, what would it mean about you if you just sat back and watched? You don't have a lot of love in your heart. Ah, so then why will it come back on you if you do nothing? It's a reflection of your character. You don't have the law of love written on your heart. That's what this text is talking about. If we see somebody in danger and we care not about them, it's not simply that that God is going to take their sin and put it against us. It's a reflection that we haven't been transformed. So it's our own hardness of heart that condemns us. How far do we need to take that? Because it might not be such a serious situation as a kid playing with a gun, but just a guy who's homeless out in the rain or something. First, the context. The context is talking about someone who is a wicked man living a wicked life in sin, and we don't warn him. He is being homeless. Okay. Is being homeless a sin that you can't be saved from? In other words, is homeless is being homeless wicked? No. No. You have to warn somebody, you better repent from your homelessness. No. So I think the idea of helping those in need is uh, another reflection of love in the heart. But I don't think it's particularly talking about this text of warning somebody who is living a destructive life. Over here, yes. But uh, Jesus says in the New Testament, all you have done unto them, you have done unto me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it talks about when we help those in need, it reflects the love in our heart. And that's a different aspect of how we, we, we move forward in love. But that's not specifically about this text, about warning somebody we see it's, it's destroying their soul. And there can be people in need who are very much Christ-like and in a very saved relationship but have need. And we don't need to warn them to, to turn to Christ, but we may need to give a helping hand to help them up. And I'll give some examples of you, you talk about, as you've done it one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. The uh, prodigal son, when he left home, what kind of circumstances does he end up in? Pig pen. Was the father without resources and means to help that boy in the pig pen? Did the father help him in that circumstance? Yes. No. No. He left him there. Why did the father not deliver him? Why did not father have agents follow him to send him pizza from Pizza Hut and give him Motel 6 every other night to get a shower? You know, why did he do that? He had the resources to help him, right? Because it wouldn't have helped him. It would have continued to contribute to his destruction. 
It was leaving him in the consequences of his, of his rebellious decisions that woke him up and said, whoa, something is wrong in the course I'm on. I'm turning my life around. And so helping doesn't always mean giving somebody in a homeless situation food. And so when we go to help people, just handing out money to somebody on the street is not necessarily helping them. We, if we really want to help them, we have to have a little knowledge of the circumstance. And if you stop and ask a homeless person on the street their circumstance, how often do you think you're going to get the straight stuff? Yeah. I deal with people from the street regularly, and I can tell you, even in my office, it's difficult to get the straight stuff. Um, there's another hand. Yes. Let's simplify this situation. We've all seen this happen. A little girl, three years old, playing with a ball on the edge of a swimming pool. And all the person says, well, that's not my kid. The mother should be looking after the kid. So you walk off, and the kids end up five minutes later face down in the pool. Who's responsible? Yeah. You could have saved the child. <clears throat> Karen, your question a step further about someone who's in a, addressing someone who's in a destructive lifestyle. Doesn't Ellen White give an example of a, a man that she prayed for healing for, and he was indeed healed, and then he went back to uh, a lifestyle which led him to the sickness uh, that he was in in the first place? Yes, and after that she said, the example she gave was she prayed that time, early in her ministry, simply that he would be healed, right. but not God's will be done. And after she said she would never pray that way again, it was always God's will. And she talked to the Lord, why did you heal this man, even though he was going to go back and live this horrible life? And the message or the impression or the idea that she got from the Lord was, because I wanted to support you in the eyes of the people as, as someone who was working for me. And so she never prayed that way again. Yes, yes. I think it's also important to note that in the text, it's God giving him the message for the other person. So it's also a reflection of your character. If God gives you a message for somebody and you don't give it, then you are turning off the response to that voice, which is also going to reflect in your character. You're going to go farther away from God. Beautiful insight right there. You see, there's a certain spiritual arrogance that we can sometimes get that it's our responsibility to give the word to everyone that we see, walking around looking at who needs us to bless them with uh, you know, correction and rebuke. But it's different, though, than when the Lord has given us a direction to help a particular person. And then, how would you feel, still same context, this idea of something being held accountable to you, how would you feel if you were an engineer who designed... And I want you to, how would you feel if you were an engineer who designed a, the plans for a bridge and oversaw the construction of a bridge, but in order to make more money, you cut corners, you cheated, you faked reports, you used substandard materials, all on the purpose of, of getting uh, ahead financially. And later, sometime later, your wife and child were on that bridge when it collapsed and died. How would you feel? I'd feel completely responsible. You see, you think that's kind of what God is talking about in this passage. That when we know to do good, and we purposely don't do good to help others. And there are circumstances where you don't know. Sometimes we can find ourselves in situations where you see the kid playing with the ball by the pool, but you see the person uh, three chairs over thinking that's their mom, and it's not, but you thought it was. And you walk away. Because you thought they're in good hands. Are you accountable for that? No. So we, we, we don't want to overread the, the idea that when something bad comes, because this is one of the huge mistakes we make as humans, we often will judge ourselves on outcomes, how things turn out, rather than the decisions we made at the time with the knowledge that we had. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. The second paragraph uh, in Sunday's lesson, which begins on occasion, somebody read that for us. On occasion, God, apart from human messengers, reaches out to individuals in heathen lands and saves them. However, they are saved because the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts, and they have responded appropriately as evidenced by their works. They are not saved because they have lived up to their conscience. If they were, then they would be saved by keeping the law, and the New Testament clearly denies that possibility. The issue in Romans 2, 11 through 16 is the account of Jews and Gentiles, not their salvation. The fact that God is no respecter of persons is illustrated by what Paul says in Romans 2, 12. 
as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Those without the law are the Gentiles who do not have the law, the written law given, who do not have the written law given to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. However, they will perish not because they did not have the written law, but because they are sinners who have transgressed against the law written in their hearts and their consciences. Thoughts about this? Any thoughts? Questions? Comments? Ah, so which law? The lesson wants us to believe it's the it's the written code given at Sinai. Paul doesn't actually explicitly state that. In fact, later in Romans, Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. In Romans fourteen or fifteen, um, love is the fulfillment of the law. So um, Jesus, of course, said, "Love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, neighbor as yourself." On these two hangs all the law and prophets. So. Is it simply the, the written code that we're talking about here? Or is it the, the law of, of life? As you know, one of the founders of our church writes that the law of love is the law of life. So what is it that life is based upon? Is, is love simply a feeling, an emotion, an attitude, or is it something more than that? Is it a principle? Is it a template? Is it a construction code upon which God designed creation to operate? Thoughts? This is the foundation that God created everything to run upon, the other-centered giving and love. Satan's government is just the opposite of that. It's this principle of taking. It's not the principle of giving. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is, that, God, uh, uh, that Christ gave himself for us, and we ought to give ourselves for each other. Love is the principle of life. Satan's government is the principle of taking. And they're at war with each other. So, when Adam sinned, humankind had a change in its nature. Designed to operate on perfect other-centered love, Adam and Eve believed lies, and lies believed sever the circle of love. And from that, the next consequence, broken love and trust, results in fear and selfishness. God, because I believe what Satan says about you. I believe you're like Satan, alleges. So I can't trust you anymore. Because I can't trust you, well, I know you're powerful. I'm afraid of you. And that in the world today is called survival of the fittest. We're born with this, wired into us. We are all wired to watch out for number one. Jesus came into the world to restore love. What's the new covenant? I will write my law in your heart and mind. The law of the Ten Commandments, the law of love. The law of love. And so we're going back to this question. Uh, why are we lost? Jesus said, well, the Bible says we're born in trespasses, dead in trespasses and sin. John says in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The law of love is the law of life. And we pass from death to life as we have come back to a trust relationship with God. We open the heart to him and the Holy Spirit pours out, Romans 5, 5. He pours his love into our hearts. He rewrites his law of love in our hearts. We've passed from death. To life, but if we don't trust God, if we don't open the heart, the law is not written in the heart. We remain in death because survival of the fittest is incompatible with life. Yes. Um, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Um, how do you differentiate between the law of love and the Ten Commandments? It seems like you're kind of putting a um, separate, you know, separation between these two, but they seem to be sort of the same. Well, um, several things. One, can love be commanded? Nope. So were the ten, then the ten suggestions? No, they were the Ten Commandments. But yet, love can't be commanded. So what is that all about? What is the purpose? And the New Testament's clear. The Ten Commandments were never tools of salvation. They were tools of diagnosis. The law was given that sin might abound, says in Romans. Or that the law is the mirror we look in to see our sickness. Or it says in Timothy that the law was not given for the righteous man, but for the wicked man, for the unruly, for the, for the rebellious. Why? Well, because without the law, we wouldn't know our sick condition. It was given to diagnose that we are terminal, dead in our trespasses and sin, that there's no one righteous, not one. So the law was given, the written law was given, to help wake us up 
to the fact that we are terminal and dying. But the law can't save us. The law can't heal us. And so the metaphor I use is the laws like an MRI. When you're sick and you get an MRI scan, the MRI scan exposes the sickness. But the MRI scanner can't fix you. It can't heal you. It can only show you you're sick. That's the purpose of the written law. But then once we're diagnosed, the written law takes us by the hand to the physician, the heavenly physician, Jesus Christ, who then heals us, takes out the stony heart, puts in the heart of flesh, writes the law on the heart and mind, circumcises the heart by the Holy Spirit, the transforming power so that the living law is written in the heart. And one other metaphor, the written code, and you've heard this written in some places, uh, of the Ten Commandments is a transcript of God's character. I believe that to be case. Just like your DNA is a transcript of you. And we could put that on paper and we can look at you and we could read this transcript. But looking at this transcript, an accurate transcript of you, will we know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the, the, the brightness of the smile. You see, the law of love is not a, a, a written law. The law of love is a living law. And it can only be truly seen in living beings. Thus, Adam and Eve were created as the template, the repository of God's living law. The two shall be one, coming into the unity of other-centered giving. And they were to be the, the showcase, the showpiece of God's nature of love. They failed. So Jesus came to finish that work, to put that law back in the human species where it was designed to be in the first place. Yes, over here. Many years ago, Dr. Hassan was a theologian of Andrews. He made a comment in regards to exactly what you're saying. The angels, when Lucifer accused God and said that his law is not fair, they said, what law? We don't know what law you're talking about. And he said it was the law of love. That was what Satan was accusing God, that you're not loving. You're, you're arbitrary, you're demanding. And he said, it wasn't until later did God have to spell it out. This is what love is all about. And that's what the Ten Commandments really are. It's telling us this is what God's love is all about. Yeah, and interestingly enough, um, one of the founders of our church uh, wrote that uh, the law, the, regarding the law in Galatians, which law was added in 1888, there was a big argument whether it was the ceremonial or the written law. And she says that um, regarding the law in Galatians, which our law was added, both, but especially the moral law. And then she goes on to say that if man would have kept the law of God in mind as given to Adam, there would have been no need for the ordinance of circumcision. And if they would have kept the law in mind, the ordinance of circumcision was supposed to teach, there would have been no need for it to be written upon stone at Sinai. And if we have kept the law at Sinai, uh, there would have been no need for the additional ordinances given to Moses. All these things were added because of our darkened mind, our unwillingness to see the truth, our unwillingness to keep the law of God, which is the law of love in mind. And so God meets us where our needs are, just like a parent. Yes, question. Um, Well, it seems like when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, it's kind of a command. And uh, I I don't know, I, I think it's, at least from what I understand, it's more of how you keep the commandments rather than whether you do or not, it's, um, so, like, for instance, if you're just keeping the commandments and you don't love God and you're not doing it because you love God, you're just doing it to get saved, sort of to manipulate God, that's one way, whereas the other way is if you actually love him, you will, you know, it will be automatic, you will be wanting to serve him and make him happy and whatever else. There's generally three levels of obedience. I've talked about this, but not in a while. But three levels of obedience. When I was a child, my mother had a rule that I had to brush my teeth. And if I didn't, I would get punished. Well, naturally, as a child, I didn't want to get punished, so I brushed my teeth. As I got older, um, my mother sat me down and said, why is it that you only do things because I threaten you with punishment? It breaks my heart that you don't do things just because you love your mother. And, well, I did love my mother, so I began brushing my teeth without threats of punishment. And then when I was 19, I joined the Army, and I went away to enlisted basic training. And in the barracks, they had large barracks with lots of men and large bathrooms we all shared. And I'm brushing my teeth one day, and the soldier looks over to me and says, why are you brushing your teeth? If I were to turn to him and say, well, my mother has a rule. And if I don't brush my teeth, she, and she finds out, she'll punish me. Do you think my mother would be proud of me? Not very. How about if I looked at the soldier and said, well, you know, I love my mother. And if I don't brush my teeth and my mother finds out, it'll break her heart. And I do this because, well, I love my mother and I want to make her happy. Do you think she'll be happy with me? Or do you think my mother would prefer that I say, well, because if I don't brush my teeth, my teeth will decay and rot. And my, when I was small, my mother had a rule to help me because I didn't understand that. 
And when I grew older, my, mother, uh, my mother's love became important to me, and I wanted to follow her for that. But now I understand my mother and understand how she works and how she operates. You see, Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. What kind of obedience do you think God wants from us? The obedience of a well-trained dog? Or the obedience that we do it because the master says so? Or the obedience of an understanding friend that we actually agree with him and it makes sense, it's written on the heart. And now we would do it even if he didn't tell us to. That's what God is wanting to grow us to. Yes. Um, to take it a step further, once there be times maybe when we feel that God's telling us to do something where we don't understand the reason why, and do we have to know the reason why it's destructive, and you know the consequences no, of the future? Excellent point. No, this is absolutely excellent point. There, this is the, the question of faith. Do we trust Him and follow Him in faith? Our faith in God is based on evidence of his trustworthiness. We are never to trust God without evidence. The evidence of his trustworthiness, which he has given us at extreme cost to himself through the life of his son. But when we come to trust him, there are times when he will be leading us, and we don't fully comprehend yet why or where he's leading us. But our trust and our faith is not blind, because our trust is in him, not in where he's leading us. You see the difference? But... As we walk with him, as we go with him, as we advance with him, do you expect that over course of time we will come to understand why? Do you think God prefers us to understand why at the soonest possible moment we're capable of understanding? When he said to his disciples, I'm much to tell you, but you can't right now understand it or bear it. Do you think it was Christ preferred, he preferred that they weren't yet able to bear it, or he would have liked for them right then to be able to understand it? See, I think, yes, there are times we will follow we don't understand, but it's not what he prefers. He wants us to understand as soon as we can. Yeah, there's a hand over here somewhere. Do you think that if the Ten Commandments were given to someone first, like Job or someone instead of Moses, like to where the, you know, the Israelites were all pretty much someone was really falling into a lot, do you think they would have been called the Ten Commandments? I mean, I think that it would be a different title. I think we'd probably think about it totally different. Yeah, for instance, um, I like what you're saying. Uh, how did the Ten Commandments start? Anybody know the very beginning? I am the God who led you out of Egypt. Yes, that's how they start. You know? And so we often miss that part. But um, back in, uh, where I went to med school in Memphis, they had an old hospital there that, that uh, in the, in the, as you walk in the um, lot, main lobby, there's a giant seal on the floor and, that tells you this was an old tuberculosis hospital back in the day. Uh, and in the old day of the tuberculosis epidemics in this country, if you got diagnosed with tuberculosis, guess what happened to you? Well, before you died, what did they do with you? You got quarantined. You got put in the hospital, and you got quarantined to protect society until you were well. And if you did recover and get well, you could leave. Now, imagine being in the hospital quarantined with tuberculosis, and on the wall they have a list of things that you have to meet before you can leave. See, people with, with, with tuberculosis, they cough, they have fever, they have chills, they spit up blood. And so on the wall it says, before you can leave, you shall not cough, you shall not spit up blood, you shall not have fever. And so when the doctor comes by, you want to leave, and you want to be well. And so every time he comes by, you work really hard not to have shakes, not to cough, okay? You're working really hard not to have any of these symptoms. How well will that work for you? How about if the doctor comes by, and you share with him how sick you are, and he has a remedy that will heal you? And see, those things on the wall are now no longer things you have to perform, but they're promises to you. If you trust me, if you take my remedy, I promise you won't cough. You won't have fever. You shall not spit up blood. You shall not have chills. The Ten Commandments are promises to us when we let Christ in the heart what we will look like. They're not a list of things we have to achieve because we can't achieve them. But we can be healed to be in harmony with them. Yes. That is the third paragraph in our Sunday's lesson there. Uh, is that a correct statement? In the judgment, the Jews and Gentiles will be judged and condemned by their, by their respective laws? We, yeah, we, we got a little sidetracked. I was going to ask the question, um, what is it that t determines in the end whether someone is saved or someone's lost? 
I read a text that gave you a clue earlier. Those who have passed, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's a clue as to what determines what happens in the end. Whether we have opened the heart in trust to God and been restored to Christ-likeness. Whether we've had a new heart and a right spirit. Whether we had the law written on the heart or not. We can't do this for ourselves. But all those who allow in faith God to work in them experience regeneration, healing, recreation, renewal, rebirth. The stony heart removed, the heart of flesh put in. That determines our eternal destiny, doesn't it? Yeah. So, and and which law is that going to be worked upon? Which law is it talking about? It's the law of love. It comes from God. All are saved. You know, uh, in, in modern Christianity, there's this idea that there's these two dispensations. In, in old times, they were saved by keeping the law, the dispensation of law, and we're saved by grace. But that's not true. Everyone's saved by grace through faith, the work of God. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, boy, we, we're just... I wanted to get to something else. We have to move on. In Tuesday's lesson, it talks about the importance of recognizing the time and place Scripture was written. Why is this important to recognize the time and place? And, boy, there's so many points I wanted to, and this could take a lot of discussion. I was going to bring up the idea of women speaking in church. The passage is about that. Is that something we should take in time and place that was specific, or is that something that's universal for all cultures, all times, all places? Um, I think in, in North America, we're, we're of the persuasion that, that that's a time and place thing. It's not universal for all humans in all places and all times. But let me take this one, the Levitical law, food restrictions. Were they for a particular time and place, or were they for all people in all time? I travel again and talk to lots of evangelicals, lots of them. I do public presentations all over the country. And it is commonly believed, and they use the passages that you're familiar with in the New Testament, the one with Peter having the vision of the various animals, take and eat these things, and then one where Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that makes uh, contaminates man, but what comes out of the man. And they uh, make the point, and, and also out of Colossians, that the old uh, covenant was done away with at the cross, that, it's, that Christ gave us permission to eat anything, anything we want. When you hear that, how do you respond? <laughs> What might be a helpful response? Ah, so the helpful response is, number one, if you want to open the door to communication, you're absolutely right. This ceremonial law was done away with. That's exactly right. But then you ask a question. When God did away with the ceremonial law, did that change the laws of health? Were the laws of health done away with? Did suddenly become healthy to eat three Big Macs and fries three times a day? You want to die young. I mean, and, and you're going to watch the lights go on. See, there is this interesting how the devil takes a truth, marries it to a lie to make up a poison. And, and it is true that the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament and all those Levitical restrictions were done away with. But it's not true that suddenly everything on planet Earth becomes healthy to eat. And that is missed. It's like, uh, it's almost blinded to the fact that that is, is true. And so you bring that up and you can use lots of examples that are real simple. You don't have to talk about pork. You can say, you're right. It's done away with. We can eat anything we want. Uh, let's go make a poison ivy salad. <laughs> I mean, it's not against the law to eat that, is it? Why wouldn't we eat it? All foods are clean. All foods are clean. You see? Because it's damaging, it's destructive. And so can you make the argument then, as a person who loves God and wants to maintain the spirit temple in the highest proficiency possible, that we want to use our intelligence to put in the spirit temple things that's going to maintain its health. So it's nothing to do with the Old Testament laws. It's something to do with our love for God, desire to be in harmony with his principles to keep the spirit healthy. Yes, Wendell. Even Paul says, I can do all things, but not all things are helpful. Right. Regarding behavior, that's the same thing with food. I can eat anything, just not everything is helpful. So what's the principle? The principle is doing what's most beneficial for the spirit temple, given the circumstances you're in. There are people in the world today that the healthiest thing they can eat is chicken. Because they don't have any fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables. They live in really remote and t- horrible situations in, in third world countries. And if they don't do that, they're going to they're gonna starve to death. That's not best for the spirit temple, is it? Um, some of you may know one of the founders of our church named Ellen White. This is, out of, uh, this is from the White Estate. From the White Estate, what I'm about to share with you. Mrs. White most likely ate oysters in 1882. 
when she was living at uh, Hedlesburg, California, she wrote a letter to her daughter-in-law, Mary Kelsey White, in Oakland, in which she made the following request, quote, Mary, if you can get me a good box of herrings, fresh ones, please do so. These last ones that Willie got are bitter and old. If you can, uh, if you can buy cans, say half a dozen cans of good tomatoes, please do so. We shall need them. If you can get a few cans of good oysters, get them. Well, I see some, some troubled faces. <laughs> that was from Manuscript Releases 852 uh, from the White Estate. What about time and place regarding any spiritual counsel, not just biblical counsel, but time and place regarding any spiritual counsel and things, whether it's written in Scripture or other writings. And I'm going to read to you some things, and I want you to tell me your thoughts on this. These are uh, out of a book called Healthful Living, page 244. Um, and 245, it says, Sick people who take drugs do appear to get well. With some, there is sufficient life force for nature to draw upon to so far expel the poison from the system that the sick, having a period of rest, recover. But no credit should be allowed the drugs taken, for they only hinder nature in her effort. All the credit should be ascribed to nature's restorative powers. Another one. Drugging should be forever abandoned, for while it does not cure any malady, it enfeebles the system, making it more susceptible to disease. Another one. There are more who die from the use of drugs than, than all who would have died of disease had nature been left to do her own work. Medicines have no power to cure, but will most generally hinder nature in her efforts. Medicines derange nature's fine machinery and break down the Constitution. It kills, but never cures. An endless variety of medicines in the market, the numerous advertisements for new drugs and mixtures, all which claim to do wonderful cures, kills hundreds uh, where they benefit one. This was all written about 1890 to 1900, somewhere in that time frame. What do you all think about that? Should we take time and place into account? Or should we, should we read that? That's from somebody we have confidence in. Um, we should just uh, non-thinkingly just apply that to our lives today. Uh, great question. So this is out of Selected Messages 278, written from medical students to Ellen White uh, in... Um, Oh, what's the date? Somewhere around, you know, 1890-something. Okay, it says, From our study of the testimonies in the little work, how, how to Live, we can see that the Lord is strongly opposed to the use of drugs in our medical work. Several of the students are in doubt as to the meaning of the word drug, as mentioned in How to Live. Does it refer only to the stronger medicines as mercury, strychnine, arsenic, and such poisons? The things we medical students call drugs... Or does it also include the simpler remedies as potassium, iodine, squills? We know that our success will be proportionate to the adherence to God's methods. And she responds, drug poisons mean the articles which you have mentioned. <laughs> the simpler remedies are less harmful in proportion to their simplicity. Now, does that throw a horse of a different color when you read those statements about drugs and medicines? Yeah. See, there are people in our fellowship who read the drug medicine statements and don't take time and place into account. Uh, one more to really finish up this whole thing. This was written by Willie White, um, son of Ellen White, on a traveling experience in Australia, wrote the following. One time while we were in Australia, a brother who had been acting as a missionary in the islands told mother of the sickness and death of, her first, of his firstborn son. He was seriously afflicted with malaria, and his father was advised to give him quinine. But in view of the counsel and the testimonies to avoid the use of quinine, he refused to administer it, and his son died. When he met Sister White, he asked her this question, Would I have sinned to give the boy quinine when I knew of no other way to check malaria and when the prospect was that he would die without it? In reply, she said, no, we are expected to do the best we can. What do you think about her attitude and her perspective? Oh, it's incredible. Uh, this is not how her writings are used oftentimes. See, the, the principle is the principle promoting what's healthy, what's most likely to restore, what's most likely to regenerate, what's most likely to heal, what's most likely to put us back into, into the full stature of sons and daughters of God. This is the principle using the insight and wisdom God gives us in time and place and not simply blindly letting some other being or person become our mind for us. And today there are people who've taken these counsels from over 100 years ago and used them harmfully to injure people. I have I, I, cases after cases I've seen of people injured, harmfully injured, by the abuse of these passages. 
because they don't understand the principles beneath. I find it encouraging and refreshing, her attitude when she was questioned by it. No, do the best you can. It's about restoring life. It's about healing. It's about regeneration. Isn't that what we're here to do? Yes, over here. I just heard this week on the radio by another doctor that um, the scientific proof right now is, is that about 10 to 11% of all medications that doctors are prescribing can prove to do any good. Yeah, I'd like to see the uh, science behind that. Um, uh, you know, I, these, these things come and these things go. Um, and there's always the, uh, and you want to look at the motivation of the person making that statement. The most of the time, the people making those statements have books out that they're making millions on that uh, advocate something other than medication. Other thoughts? Comment? Could properly preparing unclean meats, such as pork cooking it so it kills off the parasites, would that make it clean to us? Uh, the question is, would it make it healthy for us? And the answer is no. The data is overwhelmingly that meat-eating damages the human species, the human body. And, and, and some meats are more damaging than others. P- pardon? What about beef versus pork? Uh, it, it, some, da- some meats are more damaging than others. Um, and I uh, wish we had time to go into it. But all meat-eating is damaging to the body compared to a whole food, natural diet as God designed the human body to run on. And just a quick metaphor, and we'll have to close. Imagine uh, you have a car, and its uh, manufacturer says unleaded fuel only, and you decide to put diesel in it. What do you expect to happen? It's not going to run well. Our designer designed us to run on certain fuel. If we put different fuel into the system, the system breaks down. The science and data is overwhelmingly clear. Animal-based diets plug the system, break it down. That's what happens. Most doctors treating cancer today, the first thing they do is take you off all meat. Yeah, they, uh, it's over. I wish you had time. We're already one minute over, and we've got another class coming, so I've got to close. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not treated us as, as mindless slaves, but as intelligent beings that you've created to be your friends, to love you freely and openly. We pray that your spirit will be poured out and lighten our minds. Remove the, the confusing from our thoughts. Help us come back to the knowledge of your true character. Pour your love into our hearts. Heal us, restore us, recreate us, that we can share these truths to win this world to you, that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.